In 2003, Dan Brown wrote the first big blockbuster novel of the 21st century. Uh, the name of that book is The Da Vinci Code. How many of you guys have ever heard of The Da Vinci Code or read The Da Vinci Code? Right? Yeah, quite a few. This book sold over 100 million copies worldwide and has been translated into 44 different languages. This book is the most influential writing in our generation when it comes to people's uh, thinking and views about how we got scripture. And in this book, there is a person, a scholar, a scholar's scholar, because he was knighted, who is named Sir Teabing. And Sir Teabing, uh, in this book, kind of mentions about how we got the Bible. And this is kind of what he says right here. He says, almost everything Almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is false. Constantine, the Roman emperor, commissioned and financed a new Bible, which omitted the gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those gospels that made him more godlike. The Bible, as we know it today, was collated by this emperor named Constantine. The Bible that you have, in other words, what he was saying was that the Bible that you have today was something that Constantine basically created with a bunch of other power-hungry bishops back in in, uh, the year 325 AD that Constantine brought together this council called the Council of Nicaea. And in the Council of Nicaea, they basically said, hey, here's your new scriptures. This is really your Bible. And they did it in order to solidify their power base. And that's the Bible that you have now. This thought and this view is becoming more and more commonplace in our culture of thinking that, you know, uh, maybe Ron L. Hubbard was right. You know, Ron L. Hubbard is. He's the guy who started the Scientology, right? And he said uh, famously at one time, the best way to make money is start a religion. Maybe that's the way that Christianity, you know, started. And more and more in our culture believe that that's kind of the way that it happened. In fact, uh, a while back, I was, you know, going through some, um, some Twitter feed and I found this Twitter feed from this guy who's called uh, the Positive Atheist. And this is kind of what he said and his thoughts about the Holy Bible. Was the Holy Bible text of shady origin collected by competing bishops on order of politically motivated Roman Emperor Constantine to stabilize his empire, and since then repeatedly adapted to suit the needs of contemporary rulers and clergy, but never made to comply with reality. That your Bible was basically created over power struggles in order for people like clergy and rulers to continue to have power over the masses. Is that right? Is that really kind of how it came to be? How did the Bible come to be? Did, did it come through, you know, just kind of coming out of the sky and it just kind of, kind of fell right here and, and here we have this thing called the Bible? How did it come about? Well, first of all, a couple of things before we kind of dive into that question. Number one, Constantine and the Council of Nicaea, there really was a Council of Nicaea in 325 AD where 318 Uh, the church leaders across the Roman empires came together for the first time to discuss issues. But the issue of how we got scripture, they never talked about it. Never, ever talked about it. In fact, we have the writings from the Nicene, um, the Council of Nicaea and what they talked about. That was never one of them. Okay. So first of all, that was never there. Constantine never talked about how we ever got scripture. So that was just basically pure fiction that's kind of come along in, um, you know, in, in history 
and society. The other thing about this is, as well is this. Number two is, did you know that, uh, first of all, there, we have no originals from antiquity. Everything that you've ever written uh, about the, the Greek uh, historians and writers and the Roman historians, we, never, we don't have any of the originals. Neither do we have of, uh, of the Bible either. But here's the deal. When it comes to the copies of those originals, do you know that we have about 28,000 ancient copies of the New Testament? Now, that may not mean anything to you because maybe you don't have any reference to, to any of this. Second place in antiquity, second place is Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad comes in second place with 1,700 um, ancient manuscripts, 28,000 to 1,700. Third place on that list is Caesar's uh, Gaelic Wars, which we have about 200 of those ancient manuscripts. So coming in third place in the bronze and the most, you know, um, copied ancient script is Caesar Augustus with 200. Coming in second place with a silver medal is Homer Iliad with 1,700. Coming in first place is the New Testament with 28,000. It wallops anything in antiquity. In fact, one of my professors, uh, Greek professors, who's also one of the foremost textual critics in the world. Textual critics are those scholars who basically study ancient manuscripts. And he is the executive director of a, um, of um, the Center for the Studies of New Testament Manuscripts. It's a guy named Daniel Wallace. Daniel Wallace would always say to us, the, uh, when it comes to the, uh, the documents and the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, we have an embarrassment of riches. Now, I say all this to say this. If Constantine came along and said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going we're to embellish. We're going to take this. We're going to rewrite scripture, and we're going to embellish it in order for our own little political advantage. Guess what? If we have 28,000 ancient manuscripts, wouldn't you find either one in evolution of story? You would find within these 28,000, there were some where Jesus is just a man, and then you would find some where Jesus is God. Wouldn't you also find a, a, a difference between the manuscripts that were written and copied before 325 AD to those after 325 AD? Wouldn't you? You would, right? But guess what? None. 28,000 ancient manuscripts. That's a lot. You never see any kind of evolution of story within uh, the New Testament writers. And lastly, the third thing is, those bishops during the day of Constantine, they were not all about politics at all. In fact, they would be shocked to even think that they would leverage their position for their own political gains. Because right before this was, a, was an emperor before Constantine. Constantine was the emperor that basically said, hey, you know what, peace to all you Christians. We're done with persecuting you guys. You guys can go in peace now. Before that was a guy named Diocletian where a lot of these people who were at the Council of Nicaea, these bishops, uh, they had been imprisoned because of Diocletian. In fact, there was this one guy who was there at the Council of Nicaea who was imprisoned by Diocletian. That was a man who was just a man of incredible generosity. He was not a man of ego. He was not a man of pride. He was a man of humility and a man of, about serving other people. He was a bishop of a, of a town called Myra, which is in modern-day Turkey. His name was Nicholas. The church gave him a title of saint. They call him Saint Nicholas. Saint Nicholas. You ever heard of that name? It's the original. So there was no political power play in this. You know? So how did we get the Bible? Where did it, 
Where did it come from? I want to start just real quick, briefly going through kind of the, the, um, the Old Testament, and then we'll hit it into the New Testament. First of all, one of the things you need to see as you see this pattern throughout of the writing of the Old Testament. First of all, let me back up one step here real quick. Before we can understand how we got the Bible, we have to understand the Bible real fast here. First of all, we call this the holy book, right? It's a book. I don't really kind of consider it more, you know, not really as a book, but really what it is is really a library of collections. It's really a library of about 66 different works, okay? And these works were written between about a, you know, 1200, 1400 span uh, years. Uh, that were written, you know, the oldest of these in here were written around 12 to 1400 BC, depending on the scholars you talk to. And the newest ones in this book were written around 90 AD as well. So it spans that care. Not only that, but the works in here were, were written, um, you know, far east as modern day Iraq and far west as modern day Italy, and then everything in between. The beauty thing, beautiful thing about it is, and you have multiple authors as well, in all of these differences, you see a similarity of God's movement through history. Okay? So the Old Testament. The Old Testament is also really the Jewish scriptures. We call it the Old Testament. One of the things that we see um, is when God... Um, said, okay, I'm going to form this nation. They're going to be a priesthood to the world. They're going to be a light to the world about my character, my wisdom, and to bring honor and glory to me that also would bring about healing to the nations. I'm going to use this, these people that come from this guy named Israel that then will become this great nation and then they will be a priest into the world. And so when God gathers together, in essence, this group of people, he rescues them out of, out of Egypt and he makes them into this, one, this nation. And as he makes them into this nation, he uses this leader called Moses. And with Moses, Moses would write down the things that God would tell him to in order to bring about rules about how this community would relate to God and to one another together. All right. And so in this, what we see in Exodus, God says to Moses right here in Exodus uh, chapter um, 34, the Lord said to Moses, write down all these instructions for they represent the terms of the covenant I'm making with you and with Israel. In other words, the Lord is saying to Moses, write this stuff down. Make sure that you write these things down. Okay. And um, so what you see throughout um, the history of Israel is kind of three things. Number one, write these things down. Then you need to internalize these things. Okay. And then the third thing is you need to pass it down. And slowly you begin to see the development of what scripture is. Scripture, in essence, is history. It's slowly growing as history grows. And God is bringing and using these people that would go and they would write these things down. They would internalize them and then they would pass them down to the next generation. In fact, this is what uh, Moses talks about. In Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is basically, all of Deuteronomy is Moses' basically last words to the people of Israel. Guys, I'm out of here, but some final thoughts here. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, you must commit yourselves, people of, of Israel, you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to the commands that I'm giving you today. And this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to internalize them, repeat them again and again to your children. Pass them down to the next generation. Talk about them when you are at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. 
You know, take them, internalize them, pass them down, write them down, tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And again, you know, after Moses, there was another leader, the second leader of Israel. His his name was Joshua. And Joshua, what we see is that he wrote things down to, you know, to help the nation of Israel to understand their God better and how they got to where they were and what they need to remember to continue to do. These things were written down for that next generation. So at the end of his life, Joshua gets everybody together and he says, all right, Israelites, here's the deal. You know, it's about time for me to kind of go on my own way too, just like as Moses. And so here's the thing. This is the point of you make the choice, all right? You got to choose. Are you going to choose to continue to follow God or not? But as for me and my family, maybe you've heard this say, we are going to follow the Lord. And so they all say, yes, we are. And so then it says this in Joshua here, in this next verse here. Um, I'm sorry, go back. Yeah, there we go. Joshua recorded these things in the book of God's instructions. As a reminder of their agreement, he took a huge stone and rolled it beneath the terebinth tree beside the tabernacle of the Lord. And then you go on a little bit later in their history, you see that um, God sends these people called the prophets. And these prophets, what these prophets would do then, they would write down the things that God told them to go and speak, like here in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah verse 30, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, write down for the record everything I have said to you, Jeremiah. A little bit earlier, I just kind of um, skipped over and forgot about it. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses kind of preps the, uh, the Israelites for the day of when they were going to have a king. And even when they're going to have this king, that, that Moses basically says this, here's the deal, here's the rules on the new king. What you're going to do is that new king has to take all of this instruction and they need to write it down word for word. And they need to write it down in the presence of, of the Levitical priests. Why do they need to write these down in front of the, the Levitical priests? So that there's no hanky-panky, that none of these kings change or mess up Scripture for their own benefit, that the Levitical priests would go, yeah, he's got that right, yeah, he's got that right, yeah, he's got that right, yeah, he got that right. And then Moses goes on, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, now this king is to take this and he's to meditate on this every single day. For instance, here it is right here. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God and obey by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. And then this king would say to his son who would be taking his spot, it's time for you to copy this down for you. And we're going to have the Levitical priest to make sure you get this right. Okay? And you're going to live by this. And it goes on from generation to generation to generation to generation. By the time that we get to Jesus, one of the things that we see by the time we get to Jesus is that the Jewish scriptures are already closed. The writings of Moses and the law, the history of Israel, the prophets, all of these things. By the time Jesus kind of comes along, that everybody's kind of said, this is our holy scriptures that come from the historical movement of God through our people. So during Jesus's day, they all agreed that this is authoritative, but they didn't all agree on what it meant, especially when it came to Jesus. So then... We transition, how did we get the New Testament? Oh, one last thing too on this as well. Did you know that the oldest manuscript that we had of the Old Testament before 1946 was around 
um, 900 AD. The oldest copy of the Old Testament that we had was 900 AD before 1946. In 1946, a Bedouin shepherd out there by the, by the Dead Sea found these scrolls. And in these scrolls, they found all of these ancient documents of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, many of them dating to around 100 BC. Now think about it. You know, a lot of times, you know, through the years, I've heard people talk about the telephone, you know, theory that you, you say, one, you, you get a line of people, you whisper into somebody's ear and then they would take it and then they would whisper it to somebody else's ear and they would go down. Well, many people would say, well, that's how we got the Bible. There's a change in evolution. So think about this. You have, before 1946, the oldest, the oldest Old Testament manuscripts, Jewish scriptures, 900 AD. And then all of a sudden, here comes this Bedouin. He looks in a pot and goes, whoa, look at this. I found an old, uh, I found some Old Testament writings. Wait, it's dated to 100 BC. So let's compare the, the 100 BC to the one that came about a thousand years later, the oldest manuscript of the Old Testament. And let's see how the story of Israel had evolved over the last thousand years. And guess what? Didn't change. Didn't find anything over a thousand years. That is a long telephone call. You would think it would have changed a lot, but it didn't. The New Testament. How did we get the New Testament? When, when Jesus rose from the dead, did you know that there was probably about a 15 to 20 year gap between when Jesus rose from the dead and the first writings of the New Testament? When Jesus rose from the dead, there wasn't like, poof, there's a New Testament. No, again, what we see through this, this incredible book here, it's really a collection of, again, historical works of people who lived in history to talk about and, and to tell us about God. So when Jesus rose from the dead, you know, there, there is no New Testament. And the first writings of, that we have in our New Testament came 15, 20 years later. Why the gap? Why didn't they just write all of these things down? Why don't we just like, you know, like it all happened and then they wrote this down. Well, the reason why that didn't happen was because Jesus didn't raise from the dead and say, you know, hey, stay and write. Jesus said, go and tell. Go and tell. Don't stay and write. It's time to go and tell. The world needs the gospel. Go and tell everybody what you've experienced, what you have seen. Tell them what you have learned, how it all interconnects to their life and relationship with God in their eternity. Go and tell them. For instance, Jesus said to them right before that he, was, uh, that he, he ascended into heaven to be with the Father. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said this, but you disciples, you, you know, you apostles here, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be what? My witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. You're going to go out and tell everybody about me in Jerusalem and throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Go and tell them. Okay. Then Jesus ascended into heaven. And let me tell you, when they went to go and tell, the go and tell was incredibly meticulous about making sure they get it all right. Because when Jesus ascended to heaven, there was only 11 of them. Judas tapped out, right? And so now there's only 11. And so Peter comes along and Peter says, hey guys, we need to fulfill the spot here. And in essence, this is what Peter says. This is the criteria of the person who's going to fill his spot here. Go on in Acts chapter 1, 21, 22. So Peter says, 
So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. So this person had to be there the whole time. From the time he was baptized by John, from the very get-go, that person had to have seen Jesus get baptized by John. They were there. And they saw everything else all the way up to the time he was taken from us, right? He had just gone to be with the Father. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So this whole go and tell thing was absolutely important to make sure that this go and tell was told rightly. Okay? And then we begin to see the apostles. Those who were, what are the apostles? The apostles were basically those who were chosen by God himself to go out and tell and to be those witnesses of, those, of that entire ministry of Jesus. They were there for all of those three years that they were to go out and tell. And then these apostles began to write letters. And they began to write letters for a couple of reasons. One is just to remind them of the things that they've already been taught, to solidify them in the things that they've been taught, and also to deal with some of the issues that were going on in their local community. Okay. So, for instance, let me just kind of give you an idea of this. Um, in Peter's second letter, we call it Second Peter. In Peter's letter there, this is what Peter had to say about this. He said, for we, Peter's saying this, there's a we. Peter's not just saying, it's not just a me. I didn't come up with this stuff. I'm not the only one to say this stuff. There's a, there, there are others with me in this because there's a we. For we, we're not making up clever stories when we told you the telling part about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw, okay, there's a we, we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes, all right? We saw it when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And I love the fact that Peter didn't say the next thing that Jesus, that God said here. You know what God said here? God said to Peter, Listen to him, all right? This is Peter, 30 years later, telling this people about his experience with James and John when they were on the mountainside and they saw what's called the transfiguration of Jesus. They saw the glory of Jesus on that mountaintop. That is recorded by Matthew in his writings about Jesus. It's recorded by Mark in his writing about Jesus. That's recorded in Luke in his writing of Jesus. 30 years after that event, Peter's telling them that, hey, this stuff that we're telling you, we didn't make this stuff up. We were there, okay? We saw that. So we ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And he goes on, he says, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets before Jesus. You know, all of these things that were written down in the, in the Jewish scriptures about Jesus, we have confidence in them because we experienced it. We saw it. We saw the fulfillment of, of many of these things that these prophets talked about. So you must pay close attention to what they wrote. For their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. So above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Just as God moved through the, through the prophets, you know, through his spirit, we see and Jesus said to the disciples and the apostles in the upper room or right there in Acts chapter one, I should say, that you're gonna have received power of the Holy Spirit and then you're gonna go and tell. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit of all the things that you experience and what you have been taught. John wrote a letter to a similar effect. And so John said this in his letter, we call it first John. He said, we, again, this is a we part. We proclaim to you. We told you, right? The telling part. What we told you, uh, we proclaim to you, the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. Different dude, John. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. And Paul wrote a letter to a group of Christians throughout all the region of Galatia. And he made the same thing. This, this thing that I'm telling you guys wasn't for me. I got this message, this gospel from Jesus himself. And it's the same gospel that you will see that Peter says, yeah. John says, yeah, it's the same one. Paul says, you know what? I came a little bit later. I wasn't there those three years, but I came later as one that was untimely born by which Jesus Christ turned me upside down when I was going to Damascus and I saw his presence. And through that, I changed my life. And then we see his in Galatians. He writes this in his letter. Dear brothers and sisters, I, Paul, I, Paul, want you to understand that the gospel message I preach, I tell, is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message that you've heard, you know, from no human source and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by the direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion? How violently I persecuted God's church. You know how much I hated this movement until Jesus turned me upside down. Okay? And so now the message that I'm giving you is not anything I made up. I got it directly from the Lord. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews and my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. So then it pleased him to reveal his son to me. Why? So that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. And when this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being because it became from God himself. There's your letter from Paul. There's your letter from John. There's your letter from, uh, from Peter as well. And so one of the things too is also to understand the gospels. Why were the gospels written? The gospels were written because Jesus is the king. If Jesus is the king, if Jesus is the leader of the church, shouldn't we kind of know what he said? If he's going to be the one who's directing us and how we're to do this whole movement, shouldn't we know what he, what, he, what he said to us? Shouldn't we understand what he did and why that matters and how that has an effect in our lives, not just for now, for all eternity? So you begin to see that these, you know, these writings of Jesus's life begin to be written down. Also to make sure that's one of those things and pass it down to the next generation. So it was written so that way the early church would know what the master said and what the master desires from us. It's also to help those people to be certain of the things that they were taught by the apostles. For instance, Luke wrote in his work of um, the life and ministry of Jesus, he said this, he said, many people, this is Luke talking about here, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. So having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an account for you, most honorable Theophilus. Why? So that you can be certain of the truth that of everything that you've been taught. So you know for certain all the things that Jesus said so you can follow Jesus. 
So you can be certain of all the things that Jesus did and understand the ramifications of that. So that way you can have trust in that and follow that of all the things that you've already been taught by those who already went out and proclaimed and told about everything they, they witnessed and what you have heard from them, most honorable Theophilus. And John, in his work on Jesus's life, he said it like this. He said, but these, this is John talking, but these are written, all the things about Jesus's life here, all these things about Jesus's life are written so that you may continue to believe, to trust that Jesus is truly the Messiah, the son of God. And that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. And lastly, I don't want to end here because the question is, you know, when it comes to scripture, it's important to understand those who came after the apostles. Did you know that there are three people that we have writings of today of three people who knew the apostles? Did you know that? Have you ever heard of the name Clement or Ignatius or Polycarp? Probably not. But a lot of these guys, three of these guys, they all knew at least one of the apostles personally. I want to introduce you to one of them, first of all, a guy named Clement. He was from Rome. Clement was born around 35 AD. Okay. He was about 30 years old when Paul and Peter were killed in Rome. And he died around 99 AD. And in 96 AD, he wrote a letter to a group of Christians in Corinth, which is really fascinating. You should read it because it's really interesting because he talks a lot about what Paul had talked about earlier to that same church. But in that letter, you begin to see that these guys who were the kind of the next gen leaders of the early church, they had leaders, they had authority, but they always knew that they stood on the foundation of the apostles and of the Lord and of the Old Testament. They did not create or make more scripture. They stood on the foundation of the writings of those who knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, were witnesses of Jesus, who wrote about that and who wrote those letters, particularly those who are called apostles. And of those writings that talk about the master himself, what we call the gospels. Writing in 96 AD, Clement says this. Why don't you go ahead and go to that there, Donna. Let me find my place here. I don't know why it's not going yet, but here in, um, all right. <laughs> there we go. All right. It's hard to find my place. All right. But Clement said, to pass on from the examples of the ancient days, let us come to those champions who lived nearest to our times. Again, who's he talking about here? He's talking about the apostles. And Clement is talking about, let's talk about the champions who are part of our generation. He says, let us set before us, I'll go back one set, I won't finish yet. Let us set before us the noble example which belong to our generation. All right, now go ahead. By reason of jealousy and envy, the greatest among uh, and most righteous pillars of the church were persecuted and contended even unto death. Let us set our eyes before the good apostles. The apostles were those of, of places, of people of authority. And the writings were people of authority. So let us, you know, put our foundation on that. For instance, one of them, Peter. There was Peter, who by reason of unrighteous jealousy endured not one, 
Um, but many labors, and thus having borne his testimony, went to his appointed place of glory. And he goes on and he says, by reason of jealousy, then there was Paul. And strive Paul by his example pointed out the prize of patient endurance. And after that, he had been seven times in the bonds, jailed. And he had been driven into exile and had been stoned. And he had preached in the east and in the west. He won the noble renown, which was the reward of his faith, having taught righteousness unto the whole world and having reached the farthest bounds of the west, i.e. Spain. And when he had borne his testimony before the rulers, so he departed from, this, from the world and went unto the holy place, having been found a notable pattern of patient endurance. In other words, what Clement is saying here is, hey, let's put firmly upon the apostles who have gone before us, who Jesus himself appointed, all right? Let's remember them. Remember Peter, who died. Paul, who died. Right there in Rome, written by a guy who's from Rome, who's probably about 30 years old when these guys died. And so when it came to understanding what are the writings that the early church, that next gen, should really be focusing on and, and um, you know, weighing in on and, and really learning from, Clement says this. So Clement goes on here. He says this. The apostles received the gospel for us from whom? From the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was sent forth from God. So then Christ is from God and the holy apostles are from Christ. Both, therefore, came of the will of God in the appointed order. All right. Having, therefore, received a charge and having been fully assured through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and confirmed in the word of God with full assurance of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, they went forth with the glad tidings. They went told that the kingdom of God should come. It's from a guy who knew the guy's or guy or guys who knew Jesus himself. Clement also said this in that same work. He said, so guys, take up the epistle of the blessed Paul, the apostle. So early on, the church understood that these writings were absolutely important for understanding Jesus Christ, understanding of what, well, how it means to relate to God and to one another, that these Men who were appointed by God himself were filled with the Holy Spirit to speak, breathe out the words of God to the world. And so what we see here is, um, you know, goes on here. And um, this is kind of a list here. There's a lot here. I'm going to tell you kind of what you're looking at. You're looking at Clement. Ignatius was from a town called Antioch, 35 AD, Antioch. Um, one of the things that you may know is that Paul, his, where he um, started a lot of his missionary journeys at, in the hub, was there at Antioch. Well, Ignatius was from there. When G Paul started his missionary journeys around, you know, late 40s or so, he would have been a young man. But by the time that uh, Paul did his, like, his last missionary journey, he was becoming a young man. He would have known Paul. And he was part of that whole movement there. And he wrote uh, a whole group of letters right before he died in 110 AD. And then Polycarp was a guy who also wrote um, a work to the Philippian church um, around 110 AD, the same time with Ignatius. Polycarp knew John himself. So these three men, Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, what does this mean? 
By the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, what's really amazing is that in these guys' writings, they're already pulling from all of these works. It's phenomenal. When you have letters written all over the place in the ancient world at all different times, you know how long it would take to get these you know, together in one spot? It would take a long time. It's not like they had the internet, not like they had cars and planes and things like that. But what happened was this. People would go to one church and they would visit another church and they would go, you have a letter from Paul? Oh, let me write it down, let me write it down. Well, I got, I got a letter from Paul as well. Oh man, it's from the apostle Paul? Well, I wanna know more, let's write it down. You, you, got a, you got Luke's writing about Jesus's life? I wanna know that, write it down, write it down. So the beginning, you begin to have all of these um, sharing of all of these uh, letters, all of these gospels, and they understood how incredibly important these works were. It's the reason why it just went, boom. it took off like wildfire because the early church understood that these are the very words and letters from those who knew Jesus himself. These are the very words that came from our master. This is the, the, the very history of the movement that I find myself a part of today. These works were sacred. Everybody else after that the next generation understood that what we call the New Testament, we stand on it, has given to us as a gift of God because it came from those who knew Jesus Christ himself, who were appointed by God himself to go and speak and tell the very truth about Jesus Christ, what he taught and what he did in the gospels and the writings to help us to understand what Jesus said and what happened in that early church. You can trust, if you want to know why you should trust the New Testament, because let me just put it this way. You have within you 27 works called the New Testament coming from the first century, from those who knew Jesus. And you have it at your fingertips. There's no evolution of story, just what people told of what they had beheld and what they saw and what they heard wasn't about power struggles. It's absurd. Paul said it this way. If Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, why don't we just eat, drink, and be merry? Why go to prison? Why be beaten? There's nothing in it for me if this is all just about my own self-centered power struggle. This is about a God who really came and became man, humbled himself to the point of death and humility. No power struggle just giving up his life for humanity to come back into a relationship with him forever. And those of the apostles, same thing. We saw him alive. We proclaim to you. We don't just proclaim it to you. It's changed our lives. We live this reality. That's why we're okay with going to prison. That's why we're okay with being beaten. It's why we're okay with our lives being shortened because we saw him raised from the dead. This is eternal life. And that is how this little movement that started from this blue-collar guy from Nazareth completely overtook the Roman Empire, defeated the gods, changed human civilization, changed the way that we think about love and grace and humanity and God himself. It's a beautiful gift. I'm looking forward to next week when Caleb's going to jump into this and 
talk more about, okay, so this is an amazing gift that God has given us called Scripture. And it's, and it's amazing because of how it's come about to us through human history. But what's really amazing about it is the message that it contains and how this message completely and utterly changes our lives. So this is what we're going to do. What we see within the writings of Jesus' life and what we see in the letter that Paul wrote, that we should, on a you know, consistent basis, we should go and we should take communion. In fact, Paul said, you know, quoting Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. So as we take this time, we just want to take your time and be able to go and realize that you partake of the real blood that was really shed by a man who really lived, that was told by those who really saw him die, that was shed for you. And eat of the bread of his body, which was truly given for you, for his love for you. And his love for you is reality, it's historical reality, it's present reality. We'll have our elders over here and, and their spouses over here on the side as well. You go and pray with them to be able to talk with, with other people just like you to, to our amazing God, whatever may be on your heart. And obviously, there's also in the back, there's also the baskets or wherever where God may just continue to lead you and lead, you know, prompt you to be able to continue to be part of this 2,000-year movement so that we can tell the right story about how we really got this scripture that's really amazing, that really has changed our lives, that really does answer all of the deep-seated heart needs and confusion of our community and our neighbors as well. I'm gonna pray and then you can get up and just kind of go move wherever God kind of calls you. Father, I thank you so much for this incredible gift called scripture. I thank you so much that you have preserved for us something that gives us clarity rather than confusion. I pray that as we kind of look at it and we see it and we see it for what it is, just this beautiful collection of works throughout history of how you use people to tell the world about you and to tell about the story of what you've done through human history and what that means to us today in the 21st century and how it connects deeply to our lives and our personal lives and it connects into our hearts and our relationship with you into one another, God. Thank you for this gift. Father, I pray that it would not be something that would just collect dust on our um, bookshelves um, or find its way somewhere way in the back recesses of our phone and our apps there, but it would be something that we would truly make the most out of because I believe and I know that you will completely change our lives as we meditate on it and learn from you in it. It's in your son's name I pray, amen.